Hello and welcome to the Cafe Bitcoin podcast, brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, the best way to buy and learn about Bitcoin. I'm your host, Alex Danton, and we're excited to announce that we're bringing the Cafe Bitcoin conversation from Twitter Spaces to you on this show, the Cafe Bitcoin podcast, Monday through Friday, every week. Join us as we speak to guests like Michael Saylor, Len Alden, Corey Clipston, Greg Foss, Tomer Strohlight, and many others in the Bitcoin space. Also, be sure to hit that subscribe button. Make sure you get notifications when we launch a new episode. You can join us live on Twitter Spaces Monday through Friday, starting at 7 a.m. Pacific and 10 a.m. Eastern every morning to become part of the conversation yourself. Thanks again. We look forward to bringing you the best Bitcoin content daily here on the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast. and the bank depositors will get bailed out anyway, that's still possible. But what Janet Yellen said yesterday is that you can expect that if the bank is not systemic, uh, depositors would not be made whole. And that was a big part of their exchange. Um, there was another part about foreign depositors at SVB being made whole. But before we go into that, uh, Peter, what do you got? I just want to say that um, it, uh, regardless of the content that that was that was talked about in that interchange, her lack of preparation and the look of a deer in the headlights was, I think, very very telling. Um, you know, we like to look at these kinds of uh, interactions and you know read the tea leaves, right, and look between the lines and. Wow, I have never seen her as unprepared for that conversation as she was. Yeah, I'm going to 100% agree with that. Um, not only, you know, there's an interesting thing about human interaction and human communication. There's, there's sayings out there that, that something like 80% of human communication is actually body language. And the body language of Yellen uh, this week, but also the body language of Powell earlier when he got asked about the target rate of inflation, like the body language is way, way different than before. Normally it's this sort of self-righteous condescending. You're really, you, you monkeys are too dumb to understand what we're doing. The important work that we're doing over here at the fed. Therefore you just need to rely upon our expertise because you're too dumb to understand what we're doing. That's the first part. The second part that is really interesting to me is earlier in the week, I think we had Joe up here, Carlos, sorry, we were talking about this, this new bailout facility that they've created. Okay. I know that's a bad word. Some people are like, it's not a bailout. Okay. Whatever. Call it what you like. This new facility that they have created, um, is supposedly funded by increasing the, the insurance costs on all the banks. Now the part from this particular exchange with the Senator and, uh, and Yellen, that blew my mind was he was basically saying to her, okay, so if I'm understanding this right, there are Chinese CCP party members who are part, you know, who are depositors in the bank or they have ties to this thing, or they, they own part of the companies and the companies that are being bailed out. So basically what's happening here is we're increasing the costs to all of the banks in the United States of America, many of which will probably go out of business because deposits are fleeing from these institutions to the top four, quote, top four, 
And what we're actually doing is we're bailing out foreign nationals with with the costs that are associated with it. Is that basically what's that? that blew my mind? I was like, you have got to be kidding me. This is happening now in the United States of America. And, and she essentially confirmed it, which was kind of amazing to me. Usually, uh, you know, she ends up talking around it and tries to give people this sense of like, oh, maybe it's happening. Maybe it's not. But in my assessment, she she just confirmed everything that that Alex just said. Uh, Foster, good morning, man. Would you like to add to add to this combo? Hey, gentlemen and ladies. Uh, yeah, good comments, John. And thanks, Alex, for inviting me up. Look, um, it, it's not just that, uh, you know, her body language. It, as Peter said, her lack of preparedness. I thought the more telling conversation was with Senator Ron Johnson from uh, Wisconsin when she did not even have the debt numbers at her fingertips, okay? The fact that the debt is going to grow from 32 trillion to close to 50 trillion, the funded USA debt over the next 10 years. And they expect this to occur without a hiccup in uh, either interest rates or the functionality of the US Treasury market. Don't, under, don't underestimate the crowding out effect that uh, the US Treasury market is having here because that's effectively what's happening, right? U.S. Treasury two-year bonds are crowding out bank deposits. And you can say everything you want about banks fleeing to the uh, big four, excuse me, deposits fleeing to the big four. The fact is there's been net redemptions of deposits in the system. So that's the systemic risk. And when Yellen says essentially the FDIC committee plus her final uh, judgment as to whether a bank is systemic or not, that is very, very, very dangerous centralized control from a lady who, quite honestly, should be out watering her flowers right now, okay? She's lost her mind. She's not prepared. She's never sat in this type of crisis before. And really, we are putting our faith in the hands of a grandmother, okay? Yellen, it's time to go. It is time to go. You are a dangerous, dangerous person. Yeah, that's the part that tracked me up on that video when she's like, well... When it's like a supermajority plus me plus the president, then we can do it. Like, <laughs> yeah, that that part was telling as well. Kind of uh, interesting insight into how some of those decisions are made. Uh, I mean, I guess you know to defend that just for a second. Good to have multiple people involved in the decision, but it was also pretty eye opening for them to just say. Yeah, if, you know, the three of us get on a call and we just decide it can happen, it can happen. Like, okay, wow. John, she's like Sergeant Schultz from Hogan's Heroes, okay? I hope you people on this call, enough of you are old enough to remember who Sergeant Schultz is, okay? I know nothing. I see nothing, all right? This is a big problem. She is not seeing anything and she does know nothing, okay? Sergeant Schultz should not be head of the U.S. Treasury. Very simple, over and out. Uh, hard, hard to argue with that one. Um, we've got, uh, I see Tomer, I see, uh, I see John F, uh, in, in uh, speakers. Good morning, guys. I see tone, uh, uh, likely coming up. Good to have all you guys up here. Uh, where, where to go from here? And, oh, I just wanted to clarify, you know, Alex did say this was a Senator in this four minute exchange that um, was going pretty viral. It, James Langford, and he is a Senator from Oklahoma, just to confirm there. Um, 
any does anyone else have any more comments about this exchange with Yellen? We we could certainly keep going on that. If not, um, I would like to go to this conversation about whether or not the BTFP and the three hundred billion increase constitutes QE. All right, cool. Hearing hearing nothing on the Yellen stuff, maybe we've you know covered that sufficiently. Certainly, that's going to be a topic that we should all keep following because um, actually, actually, maybe let's let's just do this a little bit more. Does do you guys? How do you guys feel about the fact that she opened the door to a small community bank in Oklahoma failing and the depositors not being protected? What what are some thoughts? I would love to hear what people think about this. Let's say that actually does happen. Let's say it happens a week from now. Let's say it happens three months from now. The community bank in Oklahoma starts, you know, failing, gets gets stressed because of all these dynamics we talked about. It's being signaled that they're not going to be saved. People are just scared and they flee. They move their deposits to one of the large banks. Let's say that happens. And Yellen told us yesterday that if the bank is not systemic, the depositors would likely not get protected. Do you guys believe that actually would happen? Or do you believe there would be enough political pushback and in the court of public opinion, there would be enough pushback that the depositors of such a bank would get protected anyway. Uh, Alex, what, what are your thoughts? Okay, so I got to bounce literally in like a couple minutes. So I'm just going to say this real quick and then I'm going to go. It's way, way bigger than, in my opinion, than just a, a little regional bank that may not get the same treatment. Because if you think through the second and third order effects of what they have done here is they have basically, in my opinion, sort of nationalized the entire United States banking system. Because what's going to happen here is, is that in all of these smaller banks, anybody who has more than $250,000 worth of deposits has a big incentive to remove that money from those banks and move it to the big four. Now, what does that cause? Well, it causes the decapitalization of these banks. Well, what does that cause? Well, it causes them to probably be less likely to stay in business. Well, what does that cause? It causes, you know, if you back up the clock a couple of decades ago, we had over 10,000 banks in the United States of America. Prior to last week, we had over 4,000 banks in the United States of America. And, and what's happened over the decades is they've been slowly consolidating. And the four biggest ones are basically eating up and cannibalizing all the little ones. Well, this is going to accelerate the process. So this is concentrating all the risk. Over time, I'm not saying this is going to happen tomorrow. This might play out over years, but the incentives are now in play for all of the money to move from all of these regional banks, closing their doors into the four largest, concentrating all of the risk. And to me, that is a, that's not a good idea. So that's all I'm going to say. I got to bounce. Uh, you guys have a great day. Awesome. Thanks, Alex. Good to have you for the beginning here. Um, as everyone knows, that was Alex Stanzik, the usual host of Cafe Bitcoin. Um, we, I see Tomer with his hand up. Let's go to Tomer. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think, I don't think that they're going to let any other bank fail. And I think that they're going to have to now be proactive about changing, pivoting their position on it, because having made the statement that they might not protect those banks, we're probably going to start to see People with people with more than two hundred fifty thousand dollars of deposits starting to withdraw them to from uh, towards systematic systemically dangerous uh, banks that can't, that can't be allowed to fail. 
And so they're going to need to put a stop to this because this will cause the failure of all these regional banks. So they, so I think the uh, FDIC infinity will have to be declared to, to put a halt to what they've already started. This is just, it's such a uh, clown show in terms of what's going on. So I don't even think we're going to get as far as seeing these regional banks fail. I think we're going to hear the alarm bell rung beforehand. They're going to say, we're starting to see this happen. And then they're going to need to jump in and, and protect them. It's um, the rules change, right? The rules, the rules, the game. as soon as our leaders are backed into a corner, they demonstrate that the rules that we've been told are the rules of the system aren't the rules of the system. They're just kind of what they're thinking up on the moment. And, they, and I think this testimony also showed they hadn't really thought about the consequences of the changes of their roots, right? They're reacting over the course of a weekend really quickly. They're not exactly the sharpest people in the world. Uh, they're, they're past their prime and, uh, and, and they're not able to make these decisions well. So I feel like I'm going on a little bit longer than with the narrow point I wanted to make, which is they can't even get to the point of crisis. Well, yeah, because it's them. I put out my tweet yesterday. Debt-based fiat is the systemic risk. Central planners are the contagion. They're, they're not going to let us know that part. They're still trying to play dominoes over there. Right, which, is, which just brings up the overarching point that Bitcoiners are consistently harping on, which is this is not a question about getting the right people in places of power to enact the right legislation. And if they have enough Ivy League degrees, they'll figure out how to manage this system. We, we reject the design of this system entirely. So it, it's just a completely different viewpoint that, that Bitcoiners have. Um, before we go to John, I want to say, I know Tone is trying to come up and I'm sure a lot of you are aware there's been an Android bug. But Pubby, how did you get up? Because I believe you have an Android. What what magic did you pull there? Yeah, can you guys hear me okay? I'm testing it out. I uh, hear you well, now. What did you do? Oh, uh, you're going to like, hey, man, you, you got to crowdsource this shit. Us non-tacky guys, sometimes you just got to put it out there. So there's a few chat rooms I'm in. I put it out. No one really had a good answer. Uh, yeah, you'll, you'll love this one. So I, I put it out yesterday talking about, uh, look, Twitter 9.8 and 979. Um, anyone with Android, a lot of them just can't get up. And I said, has anyone got a fix for this? And believe it or not, this guy wrote back, he's got nine followers and he's a hexagon. <laughs> just got hex all over the thing, but he had the solution. So basically, um, if you have, if you've got Android or you're in your Samsung, because uh, I did this many times, you, of course, uninstall your, your Twitter app. But when you go to reinstall it, do not go to the Google Play Store, Okay. Skip the Google Play because that's 9.8. But if you have Samsung, one of the default apps you do have is Samsung's, it's called the Galaxy Store. Now, if you go to the Galaxy Store and you download that Twitter app, it's, it's version like 9.75. So if you just skip the Google Play Store, or go to the Samsung Galaxy Store and use that version, boom, you'll be up and running. You're fucked, Bobby. He just yeah, had three phone. That's it. The three takeaways on that is that, you know, one, I'm glad you're back on. Uh, two, leave it to Samsung and their stupid store to be like out of date with stuff. And uh, three, yeah, 
I'm glad it's working, but I don't know that I would trust a hexagon. Uh, your phone well, is probably hacked now. Yeah, no, nah, man. It's in the Galaxy Store. It's better than an APK, man. Better than finding some APK from a, a you know a shady site out there. Hey, Pubby, can you turn off the automatic updates um, then on your uh, phone so that it doesn't uh, automatically update Twitter? Yeah, you yeah, just go into the Play Store. Go into the Play Store and click on Twitter, and then top right, there's a little drop-down button. You'll uncheck update automatically and then, and then uninstall it and then go over to the galaxy store and install. But we're back in business boys. Look, look at these guys putting on a master class of, of technology here. Just amazing. I hope tone, I hope you were hearing that because I believe you're running into some of the same issues and we would love to have you up here if it can get working for you. Um, John F, uh, good morning, man. I believe you had some thoughts that you wanted to share before. Yeah. Good morning. Uh, welcome to all my second class Android citizens. It's nice to have you back. Um, but, but all joking aside, I mean, so one, I guess I just wanted to answer your questions directly about yelling early set of questions. So, um, it's, it's, it's very clear that if there's a banking failure, they're going, to... um, I think it's important to understand like what I think was unique to like the situation with SVB in terms of like its deposit average account, right? Like, like the, the, like the major top 10 banks and just the average bank as depositors that typically have like a balance of an on average of 21 to 20,000. Silicon Valley bank was uniquely a commercial bank, right? The FDIC was just never designed really to, to meet and match the commercial banking layer. So I think like. There's this like real component like that I think is just just seems to be like overlooked over and over and over. I, I tweeted about this the other day and posted a chart that one of my banks sent to me in terms of like reassuring and trying to, you know, give give faith to its customers that it, it wasn't as susceptible to a bank run and some of the same issues that SVB and signature banks. So to put it put into uh, put it in perspective, the average, you know, deposit um the average uh, amount of deposits in a, an average bank account in, in most typical banks, like 21 to 25,000, um, SVB had a 1.2 million, right? You saw like a hundred acts. Like, um, you know, this, to compare that with signature, uh, signature bank, it was like five to 600,000. Right. And so like, just being like, you know, not having the proper insurance limits for your home is sort of similar. Right. So, so just like one thing to kind of know, the other piece, it's very clear to me that the answer is yes. She says no, but the answer is yes. And I think like just the kind of like steel man, the argument is I feel like we mostly all agree here and and an effort to like, you know, sort of give some, some like, I don't know, dissonance to the, to the echo. The, 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 the reality is, is like, they're, they're trying to save face with this, right? They're trying to pretend as though they're not fully backstopping and bailing out things, right? Like when Biden gives a speech the other day, he intentionally doesn't use bailout. He intentionally uses the language that they're you know, the executives that they are wiping out shareholders and that shareholders, you know, are, are, you know, taking risk in capital markets and, you know, they're not the same as the positives, right? Like they're really doing their best to play politics on this. I think Janet is really terrible at that. But I think the real answer is, yeah, like they're absolutely going to bail out the bank in Oklahoma if she comes to it. And what's not clear is like, what does systemic mean, right? So like, there's no real definition to what that means. I think what I, I, I think what it means is, hey, it's part of this like larger bank, you know, contagion that's happening right now. If, if, if it's part of, you know, the, the inability to manage duration risk, right? Like, I think that's what it means, but like, 
We all sort of know that the answer is yes. But the reason why she says no is because it's a political answer to say, hey, we're not just giving bailouts to banks left and right, because that's what the American public wants to hear. And so I, I think like just to kind of answer those questions directly, like that, that's sort of how I feel. And that's sort of how I interpret the conversation. I mostly agree with what everyone else says. And I was tempted to just do my best tone since he can't get on stage. But I think like those are those are my takes on, you know, how, you know, Janet Yellen answers that question. But what the real answer is, is, yeah, it's obvious. If, if there's a bank in Oklahoma that goes down, we're going to do it. The other thing I would mention is, you know, J.P. Morgan. <laughs> literally shirt up um first republic bank right like they have a meet like i have a meeting jenny or jp morgan chase turns around and uh shares up uh first republic with 30 billion dollars in deposits as i understand it and so like like yeah there's there's clearly like you know this this idea that like the banking system is going to be nationalized no it's already nationalized like name another industry where you give your competitor 30 million dollars right <laughs> This is this isn't what happens, right? Like in normal, you know, capital markets. So, uh, just a couple of observations. I I love that. Um, I have some thoughts to share. We're gonna go to Foss in a second. Um, we'll we'll pause on my my longer thoughts, but I just wanted to highlight a tweet from Swan's Andy Edstrom, which uh, a few days ago said Jamie Dimon is the highest paid employee of the U.S. government, and I thought that was hilarious and and spot on. Foster, let's uh, go to you. Hey, uh, just a quick comment on John. Uh, yes, largely, uh, but here's the truth. Systemic would, in a definition, define when counterparty risk roils the system so much that the system seizes up, okay? A bank in Oklahoma does not meet that definition. And very simply then, you can let those depositors be either bailed in or take a haircut or whatever, the reality, however, is how does that flow upwards to the big four? And is there a run to the big four, which exacerbates the run out of the 4,900 banks that remain in the United States, of which at least 4,000 of them are managed poorly? Okay, that's just a fact. They don't manage credit risk properly. They do not manage interest rates risk properly. They don't have access to the same me hedging mechanisms that the big boys have. And even if they did, they wouldn't know how to use them. So, John, there is a non-systemic risk with 10 Oklahoma banks, but there is a systemic risk with 4,000 Oklahoma equivalent banks. And that's where it's hard to draw the, the, uh, um, the border, if you will. So Yellen arbitrarily saying that is perhaps the system is arbitrary at this point, but as soon as you ma amass enough of the 4,000 that are poorly managed, then they as a whole become systemic and it flows uphill to the bigger system. Final, final comment on Silicon Valley Bank. You're 100% correct. It was a commercial bank that grew too quickly. Their deposit base grew too quickly for them to properly allocate the risk into either diversified portfolios of loans or into matched maturity U.S. Treasury exposure. And then it started going offside and they do what every horrible trader does. They add to a losing position and they just made it worse. So systemic is all in the eye of the beholder, but group 4,000 community banks together, I promise you they're systemic, okay? 
Um, just two thoughts from Canada. No, I would agree. I would agree with that largely, Grant. I think what I'm what I'm really pointing to is like, like so when I look at the, you know, I don't like the word bailout. I don't like. I don't care what like people's interpretation of it is, but like when people literally lose money in a bank, um, I don't see them as taking risks, right? Like the reality is, it's 2023. Um, if when things that you take for granted stop working, society breaks down, right? Like if you go to the grocery store and you can't trust it. your groceries aren't filled with E. coli or salmonella or like you don't trust the like pills that your grandma's taking to keep her blood pressure down right like society starts to break down and i think depositors ultimately fit a very similar part of like that kind of you know just taken for granted component of society but what i'm suggesting is like what i see is like the backstopping of like svb depositors is really a prevention to the next 15 to 500 banks going under right it wasn't just like hey they are going to make right, quote unquote, by these particular depositors is like, hey, you got to make sure there isn't 500 more of these, right? And like very few problems cost less to solve later. Very few problems in life, whether it's cancer, a bridge, bad habits with your children, almost all of them are less expensive to, you know, sooner. And so I don't disagree, Greg, but that's mostly like the interpretation that I take on sort of like how they're viewing systemic you know, definition, which I think doesn't really matter because I actually still think they would bail out that Oklahoma City Bank. I really do. Yeah, a lot, lot of interesting things we can dig into there. Um, one, I'll just kind of throw this out there. We can dig into it as time goes on. But if the answer is yes, I think there's some debate about why exactly Yellen kind of gave the answer of no yesterday. And I think John offered an interesting take on on why that might be the case. I think there are some other potential perspectives there. And then there's this debate over whether someone who was just a depositor in the bank and they should not be deemed as ha having taken the, what is essentially investment risk of owning and underwriting treasuries, uh, mortgage-backed securities, municipals, corporate bonds, commercial loans, real estate loans, you know, most people who have their money in a bank have no interest in taking that kind of risk, uh, but they took it. And then you get into this question of, well, they really had no other option because there is no full reserve bank. There is no money safety deposit box that you can just store your money and use it for payments. Obviously, there's Bitcoin, but that's not on many people's radars and volatility is still a thing. You can't use it for payments everywhere. So you could make the argument that people are boxed into using this system. So I do have some sympathy for the people who are forced into doing this um, and do not want to take the time to underwrite what is essentially investment risks when all they're trying to do is store their money somewhere and make payments. Uh, so I think there's an interesting d debate to be had there. Um, I think we have uh, Tone up here under Unconfiscatable. Hopefully Tone can speak, but... Let's go to yeah, Tony. Yes. Can you can you come off? Yeah, yeah. Beautiful. Okay. Good morning. Man. Again? Hey, Pop Bobby. Thanks, man. The suggestion worked, and um, I have to like my current phone is not Samsung anymore. My current phone is different. It's still an Android, so I have to use the old phone uh, to reinstall the app. But I'm not logged into Twitter as Tone in that one. I'm logged into it as Unconfiscatable. So it'll have to be this way for a little while. Until I, because by, by anyway, too, too high security, I can't like randomly log into my Twitter. I uh, just want to remind you that. 
uh, remind you guys, turn off the automatic updates on the Galaxy Store 2, just in case. Yeah. Well, I've never even used the Galaxy Store before. I mean, can you use the Galaxy Store if you don't have a Galaxy phone? Like, can I use it on my on a different Android and use the Galaxy Store to install the app? I, that's my understanding. Yes. As long oh. as you, you, if you're an Android, like for me, I have, I have a Samsung. Um, but, but yeah, it worked. Yeah. Well, what, what Samsung is, is anyway, let's, uh, well, let's talk about Yellen. So real quick, uh, man, Yellen is such a menace. I couldn't agree more with uh, what Greg Foss says. She should not be doing anything related to economics and finance. Uh, though I will say Powell not answering the question, well, what is so good about a 2% uh, inflation uh, was also not an impressive showing. Uh, my view is this, Yellen, um, yes, she doesn't want to bail out any of these small Oklahoma banks, but it's also clear to me that she's on a mission to make sure these banks don't actually exist. So she doesn't have to bail them out. So in a way, she is solving her own problem by saying, no, 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 we don't want people moving all this money out of these banks. But secretly, she's like, thank God all these people are moving money out of these banks uh, because she doesn't want to bail them out. And she's being, she's being bailed out right now with everything that they're doing to destroy all these small banks so they don't have to like, make these decisions. That, that is, so I'm glad you went there, Tone, because that was kind of where I was going with on this question of if the answer is yes, they would bail out depositors, why did Yellen basically say no yesterday? And I think you could argue it's to encourage people to move their money to the larger banks. Um, but what you just outlined there, Tone, is kind of a risky game because you're, you're you know, if I understand correctly, you're basically saying that Yellen wants depositors at these banks to move out, but not too quickly, because if they move out too quickly, then you are faced with having to potentially bail them out. But you think what she wants is people move out in a more orderly fashion. And eventually, you know, over a matter of years, JP Morgan City, B of A, Wells Fargo all become a lot, lot bigger. And, you know, whatever the numbers are, we have however many thousand banks. And you fast forward a few years from now, and it has shrunk by another order of magnitude or whatever it is. Did I understand you correctly there, Tone? Yeah, 100%. I think they're preparing for another gold confiscation, only this time it's, it will be like fiat. Uh, they can't switch to their own fully controlled currency. I mean, we're calling it CBDC, whatever people want to call it. Uh, back in the day when the gold confiscation came, uh, all the gold was concentrated in a few banks, really. And it was so easy. You just, you know, you call a dozen banks and 80, 90% of all the gold is now under the government's control. Uh, they're going to have that point again. And the less banks they have to shut down or the less banks they have to confiscate this money from, because eventually the bail-in is also coming. And it's a lot easier to do a bail-in with like a dozen big banks holding 90% of everyone's money. Uh, it's very hard to bail in a small bank, but it's very easy to bail in a big bank. So they're very happy with this concentration of money in a few banks with, uh, with the CEOs that basically they're direct friends with versus some CEO of an Oklahoma bank they've never heard of. Right. Let's, uh, I see we got Joe Carlosari. Uh, good morning, man. Before we go to you for any of your thoughts, uh, Nate, you've had your hand up for a while. What's up, man? 
um, we're, we're talking about the incentive of depositors to flee to the big banks. And we're seeing that they're, they're getting record deposit, record new accounts, Wells Fargo and if mortgages are both offering like a couple hundred dollars for new accounts, it's funny. Uh, but about eight days ago, Pal was in front of the, um, house committee on monetary policy. And he was, he, he was trying to explain to them that it, regardless of whatever they're trying to do at, at the fed and, and to, to, to backstop these banks, they still need to change the way they behave with money in the, in the, in the Senate and the house at the legislature level because hey, they hey, can't hey, stop spending. I'm not sure. Am I, am I, it, you're uh, yeah, you're sounding kind of like a, a robot. Um, I, you know, I would maybe suggest shooting Pubby a DM. He, um, kind of has all the fixes for, for tech issues. Um, but it was, it was kind of hard to, to hear you there. Um, if, if you could fix your mic, would, would love to hear what you're saying, but it was pretty hard to hear you. How about now? Maybe a little bit better. The legislature is incentivized to continue spending money, which yeah, incentivizes it's uh, unfortunately the same. Yeah. I would just say jump down and jump back up. The issues we had was you couldn't even get on stage. Uh, I, yeah, dude, I, just get leaving and come back up, man. That may fix it. Yeah, that'll clear it up probably. It's like I could hear what he was saying, but it just, just sounded like a robot. Yeah, pretty, yeah, pretty choppy. Yeah, I was going to say, Joe's mic is usually one of the best on stage, man, with his voice. So, yeah, I'd hop off back in. Yeah, and uh, and PSA, Pubby is now the tech master. So anyone in the audience, if you're having issues with your laptop, with your smart refrigerator, your Kindle's not working, shoot Pubby a DM. He will figure it out for you. Uh, or at I'm least kidding. he knows a guy. <laughs> he, Pubby certainly knows a guy. I'm sure he knows a guy everywhere. Um, I, I always put that out there, though, for anything. I'd say, look, my DMs are always open. No matter what, if you guys want to talk, anything you want to talk about, my DMs are open. I, I guarantee I may not have half the answers, but I know where to find them. I know where the experts reside here. Nice defense, Puppy, but no, we're going to use it for tech support now. That is a Puppy flex if I've ever seen one. Hey, it's not what you know. Uh, Joe, Carlos, sorry. Good morning. Anything you want to share on these topics we have covered thus far? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, let me start by saying... Uh, I very much uh, am sympathetic to Tony's view because I do agree, uh, as I said a few days ago in here, that I think that the uh, ultimate goal of many central planners is to concentrate the banking system, which makes it far easier to manage. And this uh, largely is driven uh, by the consolidation and uh, uh, demise of regional banks. So I agree with Tone's point on that. However, I can tell you, uh, you know, Yellen in that situation is answering questions under oath at a hearing, right, from a senator. And from someone who's deposed hundreds, if not thousands of witnesses, I can tell very quickly when someone does not have an answer, when they're scrambling and stumbling, trying to come up with policy on the fly. And I think sometimes we give these guys far too much credit when they're freestyling policies that did not even exist a week ago. I view them largely as the keystone cops. They are making this up as they go along. They're making new facilities as they go along. They'll say things are stable. And then the next week they'll roll out some new program because it is invariably not stable. So I'll just tell you from my perspective, hearing Yellen's back and forth there, I think very clearly they had not assessed the strategic uh, implications 
of bailing out one regional bank when the next one fails? Are you just going to continually bail out and continue to provide backstop for deposits nationally? And, you know, what her answer is really there is that, yes, if we deem it systemic, we will, uh, which is a horrible, horrible signal to send to the marketplace. And the real sad thing, I think, from all this is that this is our Treasury Secretary who did not have a planned answer, who did not think this through clearly. That is the scariest and saddest thing that I can see coming out of all this. Those are good, good points. It's kind of hard. It, it's, it's really hard to spin this positively either way. If, if you take the view that she was wildly unprepared and didn't have an answer to what is a very logical question that follows from all the events of the past week, or if, if she, you know, more conspiracy theory, so to speak, um, if you believe that this is kind of her intention is to c consolidate the banking system, uh, neither one of those is, uh, is a very positive way to spin this. Um, Nate, well, yeah, I'd love to, love to comment on what Joe said ahead, real quick. Uh, so Joe, I completely agree with you. Uh, they clearly didn't have a plan, uh, but also there's no way there's going to be a written papered plan or even a discussion about getting rid of these small banks and getting everyone to move the money, right? It's one of those nod things. Like they all like, like mentally agree on this happening without ever actually discussing it so that they don't have to be in a position where they're lying to Congress. Though I will also add that I have watched more congressional hearings in the last two years since the whole COVID thing basically started uh, or like with the elections and all this other stuff. I've watched more hearings than at any other point in history, or maybe I was too young, I didn't care. Now I'm at an age where politics actually matters. And there's one thing I can walk away with is that there was zero consequences and zero penalties for lying to Congress at a hearing. I started with Fauci and all the others. It does not matter. 90% uh, of the time they say, I don't remember when they clearly know what's going on. So they do their best not to lie by saying they don't remember. But even if you flat out lie to Congress in that setting, there was zero, absolutely zero consequences. Well, that's not true. There's no consequences legally. They're not going to prosecute you for perjury. That, that is correct. But look, look at the consequences right here. Do you think Yellen likes the fact that she's got on video now being bandied about on all the shows looking like she's totally incompetent and doesn't have an answer? That is a consequence in itself. You know, appearing dumb in front of Congress is not a good look. Yeah, that's true. But like that, that will almost happen to anyone. It's very rare uh, not to end up in that situation because you don't really know the questions ahead of time. But yeah, no, I agree. She doesn't look good, but flat out lying to them. Like again, we'll look at Fauci. Flat out lying to them doesn't matter. It It's an interesting point. I think, I think tone... You know, his recent history certainly has proven true, whether it's Fauci, James Clapper, probably many other people that I'm not thinking of right now. Uh, they don't actually experience direct consequences for lying to Congress. But I think Joe kind of has a good point, too, is that that doesn't necessarily mean they're just going to go up there and willy nilly say things that are incorrect because just the reputational issues alone and having to answer questions from people about, hey, why did you say this? And it turned out to not be true. That, that's a deterrent in and of itself. But it, it is a good point that these people are not you know, going to be thrown in jail. I think that's been proven to be true. Yeah, and also, like we all love Jack Dorsey, but him sitting up there saying that Twitter doesn't shadow ban, uh, like we all knew that was bullshit in real time. Yeah, 
very fair point. Tough, tough to totally trust that guy because of that. Uh, I think we like what he's doing in terms of Bitcoin adoption, but really hard to forget those instances. Uh, Nate, hopefully your mic is working. How are we doing? Is this better? I think that's a lot better. Cool. Awesome. Um, Tone, she, she also got a little bit of help from the, from the bench as well when they tried to move on to, I think, solar panels or something was the next question. Um, but the parties themselves enabled this, this behavior. And that's kind of what I want to talk about. The incentives that drive, the, that are driving them to like backstop and assist the larger banks in this whole situation, because we've seen record flows of new accounts to the larger banks. Powell was on the House Committee for Monetary Policy eight days ago, and he's telling them, you guys need to fix your budget behavior. You need to stop spending money because you're, you're, you're creating these incentives. And their incentives as senators and, and legislators is to spend money. They, that's how they get elected. They make promises and they have to show them by niching out their own spot on the budget and creating more and more spending. That, that's the original uh, uh, creation of the deficit and, and why we're in such a position now. Oh, yeah, no, I agree. Well, like uh, Jerome Powell is like that uh, money manager of some kid's trust after the parents pass away, right? And you try to convince the kid not to blow through his trust like a drunken sailor, right? It's a losing battle. And there's no end to it. They can keep going on forever. Like, it doesn't matter. Should we pivot to the question, which I think is an interesting one, but I also will say, I, I don't think, it, you know, there are some semantics involved in here, so I don't think we should take it too, too seriously, but I think it'll be interesting to hit on at least for a little bit here. Does the BTFP program constitute QE? And I think uh, this is, you know, being debated on Twitter. I think even the markets are kind of debating it to a certain extent, because if it is full-blown QE, you would think that equity markets would rally in the face of that. Even that's kind of up for debate. But today, as I look at equity markets, S&P and NASDAQ both down about a percent, uh, whereas Bitcoin has rallied, it's given some of it back. Uh, it almost got to 27K. Now it's back down to low 26s. But I got the feeling that Bitcoin was rallying in the past, uh, let's call it 12 to 18 hours on the back of this announcement that the Fed just increased their balance sheet by 300 billion, increasing the balance sheet as a form of QE. Um, although I am uh, sympathetic to the view that this is not necessarily full-blown QE and there are some nuances as to what they're doing and as to whether uh, it may <laughs> reverse itself in the future. I almost can't say that with a straight face because most of the time that the Fed tells us that some sort of program will reverse in the future, it does not happen. Maybe this will be one of the few times that it does. But I would like to hear some people's thoughts on this topic. And I see Nate with a hand up. So, Nate. I, I want to bring up Danielle DiMartino Booth in this subject because she was pulling her hair out with the misunderstanding of how this is functioning. And I don't, I don't, I'm not going to say I completely understand it, but it seemed to me like her argument was that this is a way for the Fed to claw it back at around the, two, the loan rate of like 2%. Um, and it shifts, it shifts a lot of the, the 
the QT back onto the market because they're, they're applying a rate to assets that have already been sold out. And that's, that's where her argument basis was. And I would like to hear Greg on this. No. Well, go ahead, Joe. I think you were having a conversation. No, I'm not going to jump in front of Greg. Go ahead, Greg. Um, my argument is very simply, you got to look always at extremes. Um, would you call it quantitative tightening? I certainly wouldn't. Uh, regardless, it's a moot point because QE is the only thing that solves the debt spiral. So we're arguing over a moot point here. QE infinity is the only thing that solves the fiat debt spiral. You can call it whatever you want. You know, you can not call it a bailout. You can call it a backstop. And this BTFP, you know, they, I can't remember what they call it, but I'll call it backstopping the Fed, the Fiat Ponzi. Okay. BTFP, backstopping the Fiat Ponzi. It is a fucking way of QE infinity, just with smoke and mirrors, if Daniel DiMartino Booth wants to call it that. Otherwise, call it what it is. The Fed's balance sheet has to keep expanding to finance the debt spiral. And this is a component of the debt spiral. Because why? Because U.S. Treasury short-term notes are competing against bank deposits for risk return attractiveness and is causing runs on the bank. That's my view. Over to you, Joe. Okay. So let's start with what's driving the balance sheet growth. And when you look at the balance sheet, okay, you can do the two plus two, oh, balance sheet up, balance sheet down, say it's all QE or money printer go burr. That's completely wrong. And here's why. Every single year, the balance sheet ebbs and flows, grows, yes, due to QE, but also due to the growth of the Treasury General account. The Treasury's account is either ground down or rising in the balance sheet, and that is included in the balance sheet assets. So you have to look at what is driving either the growth or the deceleration of the balance sheet, okay? And as you know, the balance sheet was declining for the last several months. So what changed, okay? You can actually look at this, guys. There's public data about this. It actually is not the BTFP. That was not the primary driver of the $300 billion increase in the balance sheet, okay? Was it QE? No, it was not the Fed buying bank reserves off, uh, off the balance sheets of various, uh, excuse me, buying treasuries off the balance sheets of various banks. What actually drove the bulk of the increase was something called the Fed's discount window being utilized. If you don't know what that is, go look it up. But the discount window is not old. It was started in the 1920s. It's 100 years old. What it allows for is it allows for short-term credit being extended to distressed institutions. Greg is exactly right that the banks are clearly caught over their skis. They're scrambling for credit. They're scrambling for loans and liquidity on a short-term basis. So they go to the discount window. They get 90 days. And in the entire history of the discount window, guys, not a single institution, not a single institution has failed to meet a discount window obligation. So, so the $140 billion, which is half of the $300 billion in growth, that is primarily not even due to the new program that was instituted. And by the way, anybody can go access it. That's why it exists. It's not a new program. So let's talk about the, B, the BTFP really quick. Okay. The Bank Term Funding Program is a similar program. The only major difference between the two is you extended out a year. The discount window was being flooded. So they started up the, this program where instead of 90 days, you get a year. It does provide liquidity, but the main difference between this and regular QE is whereas QE removes collateral from the system, it removes 
bonds and uh, MBS and treasuries from the bank's balance sheet. This says, no, 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 you hold those bonds. You hold that collateral. We're going to give you a year worth of liquidity for the par value. So it is injecting liquidity. But the big difference between this and QE is that with QE, banks having, balance, uh, having bank reserves are more like, there's data that shows this, they are more willing to engage in certain lending activity and they actually reduce assets with straight QE. With this, because it's collateralized loans being given to the banking institutions, they are not able to lend against it. They're able to use it for withdrawals and they actually there's a stipulation in the program and the FAQs about this. They can't use it to buy other assets. They can't use it to do anything other than meet depositors' uh, redemption requirements. So. I hope that helps. So yeah, it does, Joe, and you're totally right because the discount window is used when there are stresses in the system, okay? That's the key, and it has been around for 100 years, and it always exists for when there are stresses in the banking system. And if you want to use semantics to differentiate between a liquidity event and pure quantitative easing, that is fine. But at the end of the day, and I'm just going to throw this out, what happens at the end of 90 days? And then what happens at the end of one year? And I will, dollars to donuts, because I'm Canadian, dollars to donuts, there will be a number of these collateralized loans that roll into long-term funding, essentially QE on behalf of the Fed. We can argue about it or not. At the end of the day, I just rest my point, I hope. QE infinity is required to solve the debt spiral. That's the mathematics of it. And semantics aside, good work. Yeah. Only thing I, the only thing I would just state is that don't think that this is the type of QE that is necessarily the juice for the markets that's going to keep things ripping because I think this is QE. 100% correct. 100%. That's why the NASDAQ will need to see a, a, a pause in the Fed increasing the, the uh, overnight rate in order for them to get juice, okay? This is systemic, allowing the system to survive another day. This is not... Uh, juicing NASDAQ returns because the di the discount rate effectively goes down, wouldn't everybody argue that the riskiness of the system is higher now and therefore the discount rate should actually be higher? I say discount rate, not discount window. So the, the uh, implied rate that you are discounting future cash flows at for NASDAQ stocks, I would argue should be higher. Therefore, NASDAQ stocks should be going down in the face of this. And largely, that's what you're seeing as well. Good work, Joe. I love agreeing with you as much as I love disagreeing with you. Thank you, guys. Thank you both. Yeah, great, great exchange there out of the two of you. Um, I have some brief thoughts to share, but let's go to Tone first. Yeah, no, um, I completely agree with Joe and Greg on this. And this is why it's not conducing the equity markets. Uh, because it's not really QE. I would like to add uh, two points here. I still think taxpayers are on the hook in two forms. Uh, so one is obviously uh, FDIC just took a huge chunk out of their uh, out of their safe, I guess. So there are going to be additional fees that the banks will pass on to consumers. That's one. But the other one you guys didn't mention is that because FDIC just took a giant chunk, Treasury stepped up and Treasury will be providing loans to FDIC. Now, whenever the Treasury, the Treasury funds every department in the, uh, like every single government uh, department, uh, whether it's defense, whether it's agriculture, doesn't matter when they, and a lot of them don't bring enough revenue to cover. So if 
another few banks fail and FDIC does make depositors whole, this increases the national debt. This is that checkbook that the government has. So if the treasury is bailing out FDIC in order to make some of the, because the banks don't have enough, uh, you know, capital to liquidate or borrow, now the national debt goes up while Powell is raising rates like crazy. And this is what makes that ridiculous spiral where next year, it's not going to be a $1 trillion deficit. It could be $1.5 trillion because that because national debt goes through the roof because of that and that and the taxpayer is on the hook for that uh, so i just want to add that part to it yeah thanks tone and i would just add to this whole discussion we're having now that the the big determining factor as to whether it's more of a short-term liquidity injection versus something that we would describe as uh full-blown qe I think the uh, term that it's outstanding for is is a huge factor there. If it ends up truly being a 90-day loan uh, that gets paid back and the banks don't need additional funding beyond that point, or even in the BTFP, it ends up being truly a one-year loan that gets paid back, uh, you could argue, hey, this wasn't QE. This wasn't full-blown QE. This was more true lender of last resort. Um, I mean, you still have to deal with the question of where did the Fed get the funds to <laughs> make these loans, even if they are short term. We have to remember that anytime the Fed uh, is is providing uh, liquidity, it's it's not like the Treasury where it's pre-funded. They, they create it um, newly out of thin air. But it is quite different if a lender of last resort is truly providing a short term loan that gets paid back versus uh, full-blown QE, which we have seen uh, has a very, very low chance of actually being, um, uh, the balance sheet actually being reduced in a meaningful way, even though they constantly say that it will, it will, it just never actually happens. Maybe if, if no one has additional thoughts on, on this topic, maybe we can switch to what we think is going to happen next week because we have got a Fed meeting coming up on Wednesday, the expectations for what the Fed is going to do at that meeting have changed pretty drastically. Uh, not too surprisingly, you know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, the prospect of a top 20 bank failure in the U.S. was not on many people's radar whatsoever. Uh, and then when that happened, it spooked people. People didn't really know how to react. So the probabilities for Fed rate hikes have been bouncing around a lot. The latest, um, as I pull up the CME, to, CME tool here, it looks like, call it a 30% chance of uh, keeping rates where they are, a pause, and a 70% chance of hiking by 25 basis points. I would like to know what people think, what, what Powell's going to do next week, what um, they think his commentary and tone is going to, to be like. I will just throw this out there. I'm in the camp that it's possible that the Fed will continue hiking here for one meeting, maybe even more meetings. And the reason why I think that, I think it's maybe a little too simplistic to say something, therefore the Fed has to, pa has, has to pause. Uh, I think that's not necessarily the case because of this uh, targeted program that the Fed just uh, enacted. And in this case, the thing that quote unquote broke 
it was these banks that are having a duration issue, an interest rate sensitivity issue. Uh, they are not having a credit issue. So that's something very important to keep in mind. That's what makes right now very different from 2008, where banks had a credit issue, meaning they owned assets that were uh, going to default in meaningful ways, versus now the assets that they own are not so much at risk of defaulting, but rather uh, they have duration risk, which again is interest rate sensitivity. And when you see the hiking cycle that we've seen over the last year plus, those assets decline in value. And when the assets decline in value and you match that with depositors moving out and the issues that SVB had with very concentrated deposit base, it's more easy for a bank run to happen. Um, so in this case, the Fed enacts the BTFP program. They kind of slap a piece of duct tape over the issue because for the banks that can tap into the BTFP, you're basically making the banks immune at, at a cost because, uh, you know, there is a, a cost associated with these loans that they get from the Fed. But you can get a loan by pledging your securities that went down in value at par. So you basically insulate these banks from the effects of rising rates. And because that's the thing that has broken here, I do believe the Fed can hike for another meeting or more. Um, but I'll, I'll pause there. I would like to hear what other people have to say about that. Tone, go ahead. I mean, I was waiting for like Joe or, or Greg to jump in, so I just raised my hand. But so I always thought the Fed was going to raise 25 basis points on this turn. Uh, all throughout these raises, I've been saying that the Fed is raising too fast. Uh, so my view has not changed. My view is the same, and it looks like Powell's going to come into my view and only raise 25 basis points. Now, look, the Fed did break something. Uh, just like three weeks ago, everyone was anticipating a 50 basis point rate hike. That's off the table now. Uh, and in reality, he should not even raise this period. But he's not going to admit how wrong they were. And by not raising, he's admitting that they broke something really, really bad which they did, but he's not going to admit it. He's still a borderline politician. So I think he is going to raise 25 basis points. They're going to be very careful in their language, saying that, yes, it appears that these quick raises, which were absolutely necessary, uh, might have caused, you know, caused a little bit of a hiccup in the private sector banking. And I think they're going to slow down. Instead of raising a quarter every period, you know, into the summer, I think they'll just raise it every other period. They're just going to give banks a little bit of time uh, to unwind some of these mismatched durations. Uh, I, I think he's still going to go take the rate where he planned on taking it between six and seven. I just think he's going to do it a lot slower. And I don't understand why people think he's going to lower rates by end of year. I never expected that either. And now if he's going to slow down raising that rate, there's definitely, he's not going to lower them at any point. So my view is the rest of the year, he's just going to raise them slower. Thanks, Tone. Foss, do you want to add to that? Well, uh, sold to you, Tone. So um, basically, um, but I'm not trying to be a smart-ass trader here, but that means I take the other side. Um, the smartest house on the street has always been Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs is calling for no raise and then a cuts at the end, uh, going into the end of the year. I don't care what Goldman says. 
It's just the reality that we are heading into a weekend and to make a prediction right now based on what doesn't have to happen for another couple of days, particularly over a weekend when we have systemically vi uh, uh, important banks in Europe that are teetering on the brink, um, I think it would be uh, wrong to make a call. So even though I flippantly said sold to Utah, I'm not going to make a comment until more of the information comes in. I will just say this. I think too many people are underestimating the gravity of the situation in the global banking system. And it always starts as a little whimper and then it turns into a roar. And John, you said there is no credit risk on the balance sheets of the banks. That's totally, totally wrong. The credit risk has always been there. It's just not a focus. And what I will say is, once they start uh, marking to market their CMBS exposure, their commercial mortgage-backed security exposure, where there's lots of uh, owners who are defaulting on properties in Los Angeles, can, uh, Canadian company Brookfield just defaulted on an office property. Once they have to start changing the cap rates at which they value those office buildings, there's going to be huge losses in the CMBS portfolios uh, or a commercial uh, mortgage portfolios of banks. Where does most of that risk live? Oh my goodness, again, it's on the smaller banks because the larger banks securitize it and sell it into the market. So guys, with going into a weekend, watch the last hour of trading here. Remember I say rookies trade the open and the pros trade the close. Watch this close. It also has happens to be a uh, witching. This is a very dangerous weekend. It's triple witching. Triple yeah, we're heading, we're heading into a very dangerous, hang on to your hats, people. I'm stepping down. Uh, I still love America. But you don't you have to are... step down, Greg. Stay no, here. I want to. I, I have a call. I have to make a call and I'm five minutes late, but thanks, Joe. I'm stepping down. I love America. You guys are fucking this up and we're along for the ride because the rest of the world is along for the ride. Please, America, get your house in order. I love America. Thank you from Canada. We live rent free in your attic. Bye, guys. Whoever you're calling, Greg, tell him to uh, buy Bitcoin. Thanks, Foss. Uh, appreciate your comments and thoughts, as always. Feel free to come back. Uh, I think we we uh, lost Greg there. But um, yeah, just to, uh, you know, I mean, Greg, I think had a fair clarification there. But just to clarify what I said previously, I, I wouldn't say that the banks have no credit issues with the assets that are on their books. There's certainly things that could emerge. Uh, what I would like to say, though, is that the credit problems on bank balance sheets are nothing today like they were in 2008. And, you know, 2008 is a very, very high bar. So maybe that's not saying that much. And those problems could emerge as, as time goes on. But for now, the problems we've seen in the banking system have been more duration uh, related as opposed to credit related. But Greg is correct that things could emerge and that could change. I see we've got Eric Yakes here. Um, great to have you up here, man. Uh, I actually read one of your tweets basically to summarize what has happened where you went through the things that happened in the past week or so. Um, so thank you for that good summary. Uh, anything that uh, you would like to add to the conversation here? Yeah, I mean, I think my best tweet of the week was just listen to Lynn Alden and blindly follow anything that she says. Um, I think that like 
I don't have any sort of special take on the macro situation right now. I think that, uh, you know, a lot of these things are hard to understand at this point. I think what's kind of interesting is the big unknown with why the discount window has seen so much um, borrow get utilized from it. But other than that, it looks like there's quite a bit of contagion spreading. Honestly, it surprised me a bit. I did. I was kind of in the camp of I thought it was more like tech sector focused. And then, um, you know, my mind got changed pretty quickly over the past few days, and it looks like things are spreading pretty heavily. Um, and I, I guess the only conclusive thing that I really see right now is we got a Fed pivot coming. And yeah. Don't follow Lynn to the oil train. It's tanking. So that's <laughs> that. Yeah. Um, I, I am a, a follower of Lynn Alden's content, uh, you know, not of every recommendation, but, you know, who is. Uh, I, you know, I think she does recommend a longer term view on, on that kind of stuff, including the oil trade, but, uh, yeah, fair, fair point, Joe, obviously oil dipping down to levels that we have not seen in quite some time. I so see not, not just quite some time. So I don't, I don't know if you saw this, uh, uh, this tweet on about that I put out, but, um, uh, this morning I'll share it in the nest here, but, um, so oil is, is, is a very good barometer on the, the overall health, the overall macro condition. Uh, it provides reliable early warning detections for uh, imminent uh, macro declines. Um, one of the things that uh, I, I pointed out here is this this uh, chart regarding the two, uh, it's the 200 week moving average on oil. Um, the oil broke below, uh, crude, uh, crude broke below the 200 week moving average on the day when the Wuhan lockdown was put in place in January of 2020. While the stock market was making an all-time high on January 22nd, 2020, oil was breaking below and providing this early warning sign that something big is on the horizon. And lo and behold, as of right now, I think we're about a buck, less than a buck off of breaking through that 200-week moving average. So stay buckled in. Yeah, I'm very surprised on how weak oil has been. I've been wrong on that view myself pretty much all year. I've been... I, I, I expect the oil to be way higher at this stage. Dude, so, uh, Tone and, and Joe, and then we'll go to Pubby. I, I am curious though, do you guys still have a bullish view on, let's call it a three to five year time horizon on either price of oil or oil, natural gas related energy companies? Do you, has, has a, a view changed there? Uh, my particular view is that I think oil is the commodity to own for the next 10 years um, for a variety of reasons. I, I would rather own oil than natural gas or other uh, energy-based commodities. However, if you're going into a recession here, I think that oil is going to trade substantially lower. I, don't, I would not be shocked at all if we're revisiting the 40s to 50s in the near future. What about Bitcoin? What about that energy-based commodity? Well, I'm bullish on Bitcoin here, but uh, uh, on oil, I, I'm not, I don't I have no comment on oil companies, uh, but on the price of oil itself, uh, I'm I'm still like, well, I, I have no opinion right now. I, I just uh, I, I didn't see this big of a drop coming, and I may have to rethink my position before I answer. So, what, I, what do you I think no it's saying? What do you think the market's saying when oil's breaking below? Uh, levels. What was the last time oil was here? Like basically the heart of the pandemic. Uh, oh, I think it was like late 2021. You're right. You're right. I, the, you're right mar sorry. the market is signaling a major global slowdown 
but China is coming back online and uh, the war over in Ukraine doesn't look like it's stopping anytime soon. And the uh, low oil prices, the, the country that it hurts the most is Russia. Uh, they're the ones that are mostly hurt by these low oil prices, maybe Saudi Arabia, maybe Iran, uh, but the country that hurts the most is Russia. And the drop in oil prices is great for the U.S. consumer, and it's great for Powell because it'll lower inflation numbers. So, I mean, this is a good thing for the U.S. consumer. I'm just surprised that it's happening, and I don't really have an explanation. So I'm just going to uh, keep watching the chart until it makes sense. Eventually, we'll figure it out, and we're going to say, oh, it was obvious. Uh, but at the moment, I'm completely dumbfounded and, and confused. Yeah, it's the sim simplest explanation, in my, in my view, is fears of a global recession. Um, but that's just, you know, uh, the, the simplistic take there. Uh, Pubby and Tomer have had their hands up. Let's go to Pubby. Yeah, thanks, guys. Yeah, it's great, man. I, I see Joe, Joe and Foss are up here. Uh, you know, this could be pure signal. You know, you know what's interesting is, is we... We joke, uh, you know, Foss always talks about, you know, Powell, the, you know, the, the drunk clown at the wheel of the economy, which I can't blame. But it, there's part of me that it takes that broader sense of this Machiavellian, Machiavellian nature of, of what they do. And, you know, reflecting on, on this past week, it, I think it's interesting that the, the, the banks, you know, with uh, Silicon Valley Bank and then Signature, um, obviously very heavily, um, you know, involved with, with the crypto as well. So, yeah, you get to kill two birds with one stone. Um, I believe Signature was actually still technically solvent that they they shut down on Sunday. Uh, I think Joe can speak more to that. Uh, but moving forward, yeah, this is the first step. You know, we talk about these CBDCs, but yeah, when you get the guy from Oklahoma on there yelling with no answers and, and saying, listen, well, why wouldn't you put your money into accounts that you know are always backstopped? You know, this is how you start that process of killing off the small banks. Everything gets centralized. Everything's getting more and more centralized. We're, we're watching that moving forward. Um, I, was, I have a question then for, um, for Tone and I think Joe, because you guys have your models obviously on Bitcoin. Tone, last time we spoke um, here, or I heard you speak here, 25.2 was like a, a major resistance point for you. And uh, let Tomer go next, because uh, he's probably got something related to what you guys were just talking about. But Tone and Joe, does, uh, the price action just seen now, you know, now, heavily over 26,000, what that means for your models and moving forward. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll let Tomer go next there, man. No, well, my comment, I'll, I'll make it super brief because you've got another question. It was just with the price of oil coming down and Tone had said this, it was that this is, this is good for the consumer. It's good for bringing down inflation. It's good for, it's good for the economy. That's, that's important that we don't understand exactly why it's come down as much as it has, as quickly as it has. Or, whether or not it will stay there. Uh, but if oil stays down there, that's, that's good for everybody uh, that, that matters. So I think it's something to really keep an eye on because the, the price of energy is embedded in the price of everything. And when the price of oil was going up, that's what made, that's part of what made eggs so expensive. That's part of what made butter so expensive. Um, and so we can hopefully uh, touch with some price relief on, on many things. Yeah, you'll, you'll see price relief as we enter a recession and demand craters. <laughs> yeah, the, the two kind of go hand in hand. Uh, you know, oil falling due to a recession and prices falling due to oil falling. Uh, we'll see if the U.S. refills the SPR. Uh, as many of you are aware, the U.S. has put itself in a rather precarious position 
draining the SPR for what is pretty objectively not meant to be the main use of, of draining the SPR. It could potentially work out if they're willing to refill it as, as oil continues to fall here. Uh, I haven't seen any headlines about that, but we'll see if that's, if that's the case. I do like where uh, Pubby, yeah, Eric, where, did you want to chime in yeah, there? Yeah, one thing, I'd be curious to get Joe's take on the situation with Signature Bank and why he thinks the government stepped in so preemptively. Well, uh, if you believe the official channels that, that they had pending uh, withdrawals that were going to exceed uh, their assets and they weren't going to be able to uh, raise enough cash through selling their bonds fast enough without losing about 50% of the par value of their book. Uh, so that's the official story. Now, um, the most damning evidence that I've seen is that they're looking for this purchaser to buy out signature that says, you know, that they cannot support or condone or be involved with crypto. Um, and we've heard throughout official channels, some of the crypto lawyers I speak with on the regular, that crypto is a real focal point of this. So um, I don't think it's conspiracy. I really, I think at this point, there's enough corroboration where it's just too much to be just mere coincidence that um, I can't speak with other banks, but I know with Signature in particular, we have documents prepared by the, the resellers that state that they don't want folks uh, involved in crypto. So I think this was somewhat targeted. Pretty balanced answer there from Joe. Seems seems fair to me. What's up, Tone? All right, well, uh, Joe was changing the discussion to a signature bank, which is a really good discussion. So uh, we'll probably uh, comment on that after or, or stay with that because I'd like to hear more. Uh, but I'm just going to go back to Pubby's question and my final thought on oil. After I said what I said, uh, a couple of people actually DM'd me and uh, with some explanations and they're borderline. Uh, I guess they could go into the conspiratorial realm, but I'll just throw them out there, is that uh, at first oil was going down because the 50% depletion of the strategic petroleum reserve, as was already mentioned, but that stopped early this year. And uh, the word that I'm getting is, is that the U.S. producers of oil have significantly stepped up their production, but we have not seen that in the news which again, I don't want to go too into conspiratorial realm and you guys all know my views on the current administration, how much I can't stand it. And uh, the producers don't really want to produce more. And the current administration is all about, you know, the hippie environment. So they don't want to be on record of producing more petroleum within the country because that's supposedly bad for the environment. But I can certainly see some backdoor uh, meetings and talks where the current administration found a way to convince the producers local to produce more without it making it to the headlines. Uh, so that could be a factor. I'd have to look into it some more, but I thought I'd throw it out there uh, just for people to be aware. It is possible it's the U.S. that's been producing more oil uh, to keep the price down. And again, that hurts Russia and does help the U.S. consumer uh, with the election coming up in a few years. Oh, OPEC no. cut production. OPEC cut production in October, and they reiterated their stance in cut production moving forward. No, I so I. Yeah, I agree. Well, I'm talking about the U.S. producers. The U.S. might be stepping up and producing more. Sure. Uh, you know, and, and they've been reluctant to produce more tone, as you know, because right. uh, the administration has said, you know, we're going to put you out of business in five years. Right. So that's what I'm saying. Like, there might have been some, like, backdoor, like, non-public talks between the current administration, the local, uh, and the U.S. producers of oil. 
uh, and the U.S. companies, and they are producing more oil, but they kept it out of the news and no one seems to be covering it. So it is an interesting thing. I have to look into it or somebody else, but I will keep an eye on that over the next few months. Maybe the stories will start to break slowly that it was the U.S. that made up for the. Uh, like I said, like I didn't have an explanation. Like it was just weird. Uh, back to puppies on the price of Bitcoin. So I am, I was bullish before the $25,000 break. Now, normally you want to see that, you know, the proof, the 20, that 25,000 was broken. Uh, that was the major, major resistance. But the way I look at markets is I will always bet against double tops and I will always bet against uh, double bottoms. Now, occasionally, I'm going to be wrong. Uh, I, the, the biggest one, of course, is the, is the $68,000 top at the end of 2021. That was probably the most wrong I've been. But in my view, uh, I've been right so many times in a row that it's okay to get one wrong. Uh, now, double bottoms are a little bit different for things that have a floor. Uh, and because 24000 was a rejection earlier this year, and then 25,000 was the real rejection a little while ago. I didn't need to see the break of 25. Once we started breaking 22, approaching 23, I had enormous confidence that 25 will not be resistance again. And that's why we blew right through it. So I became bullish way earlier than watching and confirmation of the 25K break because it's already played resistance twice this year. So that's how I trade. Like I said, occasionally I'll be wrong, but I'll be right with that strategy more often than I'm wrong. And the same thing on double bottoms. And this is why I wasn't a huge bull off of that $16,000 area, because it was the second time we were in that area. We hit that area, I think, early or at the end of last year with, uh, with November with the FTX, we fell in that $6,000 zone. And then early this year in like January, we're back in that zone. So that's a double bottom consolidation at the low. I'm leaning towards lower prices. So at that stage, the price needs to prove to me that it's not going to go down. But what happened over the, this weekend, I didn't need the price to prove to me that it's going to break 25K. It already played its resistance and already, uh, and now I'm anticipating a break. What I'll say is Bitcoin is performing exceptionally well in this environment. Going back to the, the well, all recorded data of Bitcoin, I've done research looking at the VIX and Bitcoin because uh, I don't think it's coincidence that Bitcoin's best periods tend to coincide with periods of low volatility as measured on an equity basis. Within a day or two of the all-time high peak in 2017, the VIX hit an all-time low realized volatility in history, okay? We'd never gone uh, through a period of VIX was sitting at around for weeks at around eight. Okay. We're sitting at 25 on the VIX. VIX has been steadily rising for the last. Sorry, uh, you have a call. Um, VIX has been steadily rising and now you're breaking up on the VIX and you're still performing exceptionally well. So all I have to say is that I'm pleasantly surprised about Bitcoin. I think it's performing fantastic and I think it shows fundamental strength. Yeah, one thing I'll add to that too is I, yeah, I completely agree. I'm, I'm very surprised with the performance of it. I also think that in a more long-term time frame, I think this could be an inflection point of Bitcoin's narrative as well. I see that, you know, we have this 
contagion spreading. We have a banking crisis. It's not just U.S. focused, but happening at a global level right now. And we have Bitcoin performing well now. You could also make the strong argument that because we have central banks backstopping the situation, that's why Bitcoin's rallying. But nonetheless, I think the narrative is going to spread beyond for, you know, the general population of Bitcoin being digital gold or Bitcoin being some sort of inflation heads to Bitcoin's actually this emergent alternative, a political global monetary system. And I think the further that narrative spreads, the quicker we get to some form of decoupling. Uh, but I got to hop and uh, yeah, bye Bitcoin guys. Yeah, I got to jump too. Thanks again, guys. Take care. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Joe. Really appreciate you guys' contributions. Great comments so far. So I'm glad we're chatting about Bitcoin a little bit. Thank you, Pubby, for bringing this up. So I'll um, offer some thoughts here and then glad to see Peter's hand up. Uh, what I want to say is that I think the reality is Bitcoin's price is the main thing that causes people who were otherwise opposed to Bitcoin or even just indifferent to Bitcoin to start to get interested. And I, I say it's the main thing. I'm not saying it's the only thing. I know there are plenty of other reasons why someone could get into Bitcoin. It could be the technology, could be the censorship resistance, the privacy, human rights angle, a whole bunch of things. But I think in terms of mainstream people who are not going to come to Bitcoin for those reasons, it is the price. And this has just been played out in my own life for what it's worth. I have plenty of people who, when they find out, whether it was former coworkers, friends, family, whatever, when they find out, oh, John, you know, he kind of follows Bitcoin. He kind of knows about Bitcoin. When the price was going from 30 to 40 to 50 to 60, more and more people wanted to talk to me about Bitcoin. And when the price went from 60 to 20, no one wanted to hear anything about Bitcoin. And it is the exact opposite of what they should be doing. People literally want to buy high and then when it's low, they don't want to buy low. But I think we just have to recognize this is the human nature aspect. This is the investor psychology thing here. So why do I say all that? I think there are a couple of things that will put Bitcoin back on the radar of many people. One is just its absolute performance. If at the end of 2023, people are looking at a chart and it's going to show, you know, 20 major asset classes, whatever they are, however you can slice up the markets. And people love looking at those end of year charts and they say, okay, you know, if I had been allocated to these, I crushed it. And if I was allocated to these, I, I lost out. If Bitcoin ends up being at the top, towards the top or at the very top of a chart like that, that is going to put it on the radar of those people again who thought Bitcoin was dead when it went below 20K last year. Uh, and not just individuals, but some family offices, financial advisors who manage the money of people in, in this country and other countries. It becomes much harder to not have a view on Bitcoin when it's staring you in the face as the best performing asset in absolute terms. And I think it's just even more so the case if we have a year where equities are flat to down and Bitcoin is up, you know, whatever you want to call it, 40, 50 plus percent, that's going to slap people in the face as, okay, this is an asset that I have to pay attention to, especially if you're a professional investor, like a financial advisor. 
you can't not have an opinion on an asset like that. And lastly, and then, then we'll go to Peter. Um, if Bitcoin does perform well, while a lot of other assets are getting crushed, that is just going to be a huge slap in the face for all of these trap five people who frustrate me like no other, who say Bitcoin is just another uh, tech stock. Bitcoin is just correlated with the markets. It's just correlated with Fed policy. That's the tune that they've been singing for the last 18 months. And it's very possible that 2023 will dump a whole bucket of cold water on that. Hey, so, John, what, what's TradFi? Sorry. Are you serious? So TradFi, traditional finance. Yeah, I'm just not not good with these like crazy terms. Okay, thank you. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Trad, trad, I, you know, just say because it's easier to say. TradFi, traditional finance, legacy finance. And Wall Street, I guess, is what people would have called it. But, you know, the reality is like, I don't even know. I actually, don't, I actually don't hear that term often. I've heard it a few times and I was like, yeah, that's because every time I hear Fi, I just keep thinking like the DeFi people. And I just ignore that term. All right. Well, hey, man, I'm glad you mentioned it, because if, if it was not a familiar term to you, then that means there's probably plenty of people in the audience who are not familiar with the term TradFi. But yeah, TradFi traditional finance, legacy finance, Wall Street, the big banks, th those are all kind of used interchangeably. Uh, so everyone knows that. But Wall, Wall Street's kind of a tougher one to use because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in New York, um, have been for a while. There, there really aren't any banks who actually operate on Wall Street anymore. So that's just kind of uh, a carryover from prior eras. So anyway, that's why I think it's very important to talk about Bitcoin's price. I'm glad Pubby brought it up. Uh, would love to hear the views of others, and let's go to Peter. Well, I, I originally was going to say, but it was going to ask Tone a question, um, which I, I'll ask at the end, um, and and we don't have to pivot back to that if we don't if we don't if, if it's not conducive to this conversation because it's pivoting back to the last one. So, in regards to this particular issue that you bring up, um, I am gonna, I am going to say that that is. That that price ultimately has nothing to do with it. Every single person that I know that has come to Bitcoin has come to Bitcoin because of an understanding of it, some aspect of it. They have a need or a, a curiosity about one or many of the features um, uh, of Bitcoin, and even even a person who is a, an analyst um, or a family office um, directing a family office, they are not going, I, I believe they will not go into uh, an asset, a technology, um, a, a discovery like Bitcoin without doing that work. And the question is, what spurs them to do that work? If the curiosity about why the price is going parabolic or or why this thing is um, the best performing asset um, and that curiosity drives them down the rabbit hole, then they will probably end up acquiring Bitcoin. As, as Alex likes to say, once you see the truth, you can't unsee it. And once you get an inkling, I mean, I'm only going off of my own experience. Once I got an inkling, I had an inkling of what this technology was when I came into Bitcoin in, in February of 2021, when I first started purchasing Bitcoin in February of 2021, purchased it all the way up to 60, all the way back down to 30. And I thought for sure it was going to stop there. And then it went down even further. And 
I, I realized my investor mind, my fiat mind said, I love it. If I was buying it at 60, I ought to be buying it hand over fist at 20 and below. And that's what I, that's what I started doing. I want to thank my stack chain community because uh, they drove me to buy more Bitcoin than I would have ever bought had I not been within that community. And I cannot um, encourage people more to get together with other Bitcoiners however they can um, uh, when they are purchasing, when they're actually, actually purchasing Bitcoin because it drives you to purchase more when you're around other people that are doing the same. It's the psychology that you're talking about, John. It's the same thing. I think the same thing happens in traditional finance. If I'm around a bunch of people that are buying Apple stock for whatever reason, if I'm on Reddit or, or some kind of blog or whatever it is, and these people are talking about it, I'm going to be more inclined to purchase it. Um, and purchase more of it than I probably would have had I done it on my own. But the question I actually wanted to ask Tone was, he had uh, talked about how um, oil prices coming down would help with inflation numbers. And I thought that uh, energy was, uh, was, a, was, was X out of the metrics that the Fed looks at as far as inflation, but maybe I've got that wrong. Oh, okay, that one is easy to answer. While energy is in some metrics and some and it's not in other metrics, but lower oil prices make everything lower. There's oil and everything you buy involves oil. Like uh, like Tomer said, those eggs, the reason why the price of eggs went up is because it was more expensive to deliver those eggs. Uh, meanwhile, the eggs that I buy directly from the farmer, uh, the egg prices doesn't go up. It's like this mass shipping. Like if you got to ship your eggs across the country, uh, and it costs way more to fill up your car with gas uh, or the truck with gas to deliver it. Uh, that's the main reason why the price of uh, like the really clean farmer's market eggs were actually cheaper than horrible eggs you shouldn't even be eating. Uh, because when you buy it from the farmer, his expense of making eggs did not go up. So just think of oil as increases the price of everything around you, uh, including uh you know, well, like all goods and services, like a tire is like what? How, how many barrels of oil go to make one tire for your car? So like the price of tires would skyrocket, right? But the high price of oil, uh, just as an example, because it's rubber. Uh, but um, uh, back to the other part. So I'm on a completely other side. Everyone around me only cares about the price of Bitcoin. So I agree with John here. So uh, none of my friends, I mean, I have, I have friends and I've been on this libertarian like movement. And not that I'm a libertarian, but this like, uh, you know, government's bad and they only cause, you know, it should be more independent. None of my friends are, are couldn't care less. And uh, most people just care about the price. And while a few of my friends were very interested in Bitcoin uh, at these lows, uh, but I'm not going to sell Bitcoin at these lows, like I'm hodling. So, uh, but yeah, more, more people, it's, way, it's all about the price. Like even my friends that are, uh, in the trading world, they're working for a hedge fund or their portfolio manager. They, they, they don't care about holding their own keys. They just care about profiting on Bitcoin rising. It's a lot easier to profit in the bull market than trying to short. Uh, yeah, so I, I, everyone around me, I think it's 80, 90% care about the price and maybe 10% care that Bitcoin's going to solve a lot of you know global problems. 
I'll, I'll just offer a few thoughts there and then we'll go to Pubby and I'm sure Peter's going to want to uh, say something as well. I think, you know, what Peter, you said about people coming to it through an understanding or seeing the truth. I think maybe that's the case once people are, you know, quote unquote, all in on Bitcoin. And I don't mean 100% of your net worth into Bitcoin, but uh, starting to allocate significant amounts and spending tons of time doing research, educating themselves, participating in conversations. I think that is true. It's more, um, it's, it's about a lot more than just price to those people. But for people who started off as opposed or indifferent, I think the price is just, it, it's just the factor for them. And, and I'm talking about the people who their first move is going to be to allocate one, three, five percent of some investment portfolio that they have. I think the price uh, is paramount to them. And, and I'm thinking more of the you know professional investor community, like a financial advisor, like a family office. I think they're the people who are just going to see, oh, this thing, Bitcoin, was up 50% on the year when equities were down 5% or up 5 you know, whatever. Uh, this is something that from a portfolio construction perspective, it makes sense for me to have some of it. I don't think that's the proper way to look at Bitcoin. Obviously, I think it is so, so much bigger than a price and a risk-adjusted performance metric. But there's a lot of people who will just look at it that way. And I, I think that uh, just puts it on the radar of so many more people. Now, with that said, I think when, once it's on their radar, they are potentially on the path to understanding the bigger picture. Uh, and I always use the term understanding the bigger picture with Bitcoin very loosely. And I feel obligated to point out Jameson Lopp's article that no one understands Bitcoin and that's okay. Uh, I always feel obligated to say that because anytime I imply that I fully understand Bitcoin or anyone fully understands Bitcoin, uh, it, it makes me you know, hesitant to say that. But um, so those are just kind of some of my thoughts about how I, I get what Peter's saying that for many people get coming to a more complete understanding. It's, it's definitely more about the price. But in terms of getting people in who just didn't give a damn about Bitcoin, I think the price is a, a very big factor. So just wanted to throw that out there. Uh, Puppy's had his hand up for a while, and then we'll go to Peter. Yeah, I mean, just great comments, man, everywhere. And look, man, look, everyone's here. Well, what's what started with number go up technology, okay? This is how it started, you know, to end of 2017. What the hell is this thing that just pumped from 600,000 to 20,000 in less than a year? But once you you get in there, you go down that rabbit hole, you realize, wait, there's, there's a lot more to this than just number go up. And I just want to go back just from the start of pandemic. The world has changed, obviously. You know, 9-11 changes for a certain bit. Pandemic, March 2020, go back there. Bitcoin sitting at $5,000. Boom. We got to unleash the beast. QE comes. What other asset class has been so resilient in the midst of not only a pandemic, you've got, um, you got a war between Ukraine and Russia. You've got um, failing um, Luna, Celsius, FTX, people over leveraged. Oh, by the way, uh, Bitcoin just did a 5X in three years. 5,000 were over 25. It's an amazing technology. The one thing that really, you're, you're, the narrative always shifts. Uh, what got in here? Oh, man, this is it's a store of value. Um, you know, we, we went through the, uh, the fork wars. Uh, 
Bitcoin Cash is out there because because uh, Bitcoin can't scale. Oh, hello, Lightning Network. I, I'm a big believer in everything being built here. Uh, for me now, man, it's an insurance policy. It's an insurance policy of, of what we're watching unfold. Um, more government control. Uh, this is what you're going to see uh, coming down. And and finally, you'll have value outside of this system. So yeah, price it, price is one thing. Is it's a very imperfect way to measure the value of Bitcoin, but we do it because that's where the normies get their foot in the door. And the ones that understand what this means as we as we move towards this world of of more control and CBDCs, that's where the brilliance of, of Bitcoin is really going to be unleashed. When they realize, wait a second, um, you mean unlike the Canadian truckers who have their their checking accounts and credit cards canceled, uh, you mean I can have value outside of the system? I get it now. I get what Bitcoin represents. Right on, Pubby. Thank you for that. Peter, what do you got? All right. So when it comes to price, um, I, I, you know, I, I, I wish uh, Jacob could play the, uh, the Bitcoin crash bit, you know, went up and then it crashed and then it went up and then it crashed and then it went up and then it crashed. How many people get flushed out every single time it crashes? Why? Because of the fucking price. So, you know, the same people that are worried about price are the same people that say, well, it was down at 16,000 like three weeks ago. I missed it. It's at 26,000 now. And they never get in. Why? Because of the price. Those same people are the people that go to shit coins because they see the price there because the price does mean something there. And I, am, I, I honestly believe that though number go up technology might be something that catches your attention, it is not something that makes you buy an, uh, a technology or an asset like this. You have to, one of the properties of Bitcoin has to intrigue you enough for you to actually look at it. And if you don't, then you're going to get Bitcoin at the price you deserve. And I used to hate that saying. I used to hate it. I thought it was so pejorative and so exclusionary. But it's just the truth. The reality yeah, is, is yeah. that, and the what I like to say now is you get bit you get the your your you get your cost average of Bitcoin at the price you deserve. That's what I like to say now for those people who uh, think that twenty six thousand is is too expensive. Hello, conservative estimates in twenty thirty are between two hundred and fifty and three hundred thousand a coin. How the hell can twenty six thousand be too expensive? Get your fucking head out of your ass. Buy some goddamn Bitcoin. Put it on your balance sheet, and let's fucking go. No, that was great. But you also just explained why Bitcoin has these ridiculous exponential pots and why it overcorrects. And I think those estimates for 2030 are unreasonably low, in my opinion. But yeah, you explained the market. I mean, there's nothing you can do about it, right? We can scream about it all we like, that people aren't like in uh, uh, getting into Bitcoin for the right reasons and stuff. But I, it's the, the reality of it. This is what drives these hobos and what, you know, causes the talk over correct. Yeah. And it, this might be a case of necessary, but not sufficient, meaning the, the price going up alone. Uh, I, I think the reality is for a lot of people, 
the price needs to be rallying to us to a certain extent. It doesn't have to be completely mooning, but and again, I'm talking more about the financial advisor community, the traditional finance, TradFi community, family offices, more so people who view themselves as professional investors. I think a lot of them, they're just not going to be the people who see Bitcoin dip by 70% and then buy it. They need to have another year go by where Bitcoin is up 50% and it outperformed every other asset class out there. I think it's necessary, but not sufficient. Meaning if that's the only thing they see, they're probably not going to say, oh, look at this, I'll, uh, I'll make an allocation. But if they see the price rallying, they see the relative outperformance, and maybe you know they caught a podcast by an influential person, they read a good article by someone, they read a Bitcoin book, then I think putting all that together uh, that can help them to make their first allocation. And then it would obviously grow from there. If I could just jump in real quick, because you yeah. brought up yeah. one thing I always like to say, it's not, it's not that they're going to go in 100% and they don't need to, all right? We're sitting at what, a $500 billion market cap. What I find fascinating is, I mean, you've got, you've got a 14-year track record right now of Bitcoin, 14 years of data. And you're telling me, as you look around at, at bonds, even gold, you're telling me that you don't think a one to three to 5% allocation um, isn't safe at this point? Where the hell are you, where the hell are you going? Well, I don't understand, where, why wouldn't you? The, the, the reward, well, well, outweighs the risk at this point. And this is where I think the TradFi professional investor community is uh, missing something pretty big here because they should know better than anyone that not having an allocation to something is taking a bet on it. You know, they are well aware of this concept of being overweight something or underweight something. So, you know, in my prior life, when I was managing portfolios of corporate bonds, there, there's no such thing as not having a view on something or, or, you know, the closest thing to not having a view on something is if you have a benchmark. And the benchmark says, you know, Verizon bonds are 2% of your benchmark. And if you want to take no view, you would own 2% of Verizon. You would own it in the same maturity duration profile as the benchmark so that whatever the benchmark does, that's what your portfolio does. That would be the closest thing to having no view. But many people don't think of themselves as having the, these kind of benchmarks. So you have to take a view on something and owning zero Bitcoin is taking a view on it. Uh, so I think this is just a huge blind spot. And like Pubby said, the, the case to make a 1% or 3% allocation at this point is just so easy, in my opinion. Uh, and, and alternatively, trying to make the case of why you should not own 1% to 3 to 5% and saying, no, this is why I should own zero of this thing is just getting exceedingly difficult, in my opinion. Peter, what's up? Hey, I just wanted to say that earlier in this conversation, um, I, I mentioned StackChain and the fact that, that 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 particular community has helped me to buy more Bitcoin. I just bought Bitcoin today about 20 minutes ago. Why, you might ask? Because the block height was 2927, and that's a prime number, and I've been co collecting prime numbers. So how's that for gamification for purchasing Bitcoin? You won.
everybody wins on stack chain. That's the fucking point. Investment strategies come in all shapes and sizes. You heard Peter's right there. Collect all the prime numbers on stack chain. We will we'll review that investment strategy a couple of years from now, Peter. I'm, I'm sure it will have worked out very well. All right, I've got one more thing uh, to bring up. Well, maybe I'll just you know pause here for a second. Does does anyone on the stage have something they would like to raise? And uh, but before I turn it to anyone, I will say just kind of setting the stage here. Uh, it is 11.50 Eastern time. So th this is Cafe Bitcoin. For anyone who is new here, uh, this is a daily show uh, hosted by Swan Bitcoin. Um, uh, Alex Stanzik is the fearless leader of the show, usually the host. Um, I am guest hosting today. My name is John Farr. I'm part of the Swan private team uh, where we help high net worth individuals on their journey to owning, acquiring, and holding Bitcoin. Um, if you want to learn anything about Swan, uh, please shoot me a DM, uh, shoot anyone else from the Swan team a DM, uh, Terrence Yang, Steven Lubka, uh, we are happy to help out. Obviously, Alex as well, shoot him a DM if, if you want Alex to help you. Um, just in terms of the show, we are likely to keep this running for longer than 12 Eastern. We typically, it's a two hour show from 10 a.m. The 12 p.m. Eastern, but given all of the craziness that's going on, we likely will keeping this running for longer. I'm going to have to hop in about 10, 15 minutes or so, but uh, others will will take the stage. So I just wanted to kind of level set everyone um, in case you're new here or if you just wanted to, to know what's going on. So with that, uh, I see Ant and Peter with hands up. Uh, what's up, guys? Hey, just yeah. real quick. Sorry, I'm just going to just real quick. I just wanted to say I'm orange pilling a guy today. We're trying to um, who told me last week that that he has a million dollars in cash and he doesn't know what to do. And he talks like a Bitcoiner. And I looked when he was telling he was ranting about the, the Fed and this and that. And I looked at him and I said, are you a Bitcoiner? And he said, no, 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 no. I should have gotten into that at 16. This is the guy I should have gotten in at 16. It's now 26. I missed it. So in any case. Um, what I've been doing in the back channels is, as I've been relying on um, people who have done this more than I have, people who um, are more experienced uh, just in in Bitcoin in general than I am, and I've been relying on them, asking them for advice on kind of the ways that I should approach this. And I just wanted to say that anybody in the audience who um, is potentially during this time when we are seeing this kind of turmoil and people, you know, starting to ask questions um, about Bitcoin, if if you if you have any question at all about how to um, potentially orange pill somebody, rely on the community and ask the community questions, and um, they will be more than happy happy to uh, to help you to uh, enable uh, enable this this path for other individuals to uh, get on the mission. Get on the mission. I should have said that. That is Alex Sandzik's tagline that he has created. Big part of the Cafe Bitcoin show. Everyone gets on the mission. Thank you, Peter. And did you have something? Yeah, I hope it has value. I mean, it's a, it's a poll that I put out, but it, it has context in what you guys were talking about a minute ago uh, about reasons. And again, Disclaimer, 
like all polls, you, you know, if I put out a poll to like my followers, which are probably Bitcoiners mostly, then we're going to get a Bitcoin response. But at the same time, it is a poll of Bitcoin Twitter, which has some value, right? So I put it out and it said, why are you holding Bitcoin? That was just the question. And besides a couple of guys who came down and said, nice try IRS, which was hilarious to me, uh, you know, I had four options. Number go up, in it for the tech, separation, money, and state, and not holding Bitcoin, which is my control, you know, number there. And so 900, I put it out yesterday, 920 votes. The number one is separation, money, and state, 67%. Uh, the number two is number go up, 23%. And then the number three was not holding Bitcoin, 7%. And then the fourth was some people did put on there in it for the tech, 3%. So again, I don't know if that really has a tenant for today's conversation, but listening to what you guys are talking about, the reasons why people are holding and things, it's just, well, you know, contextually well, it, valuable to me. Yeah, it makes sense why that one pulled so low because separating money in state is the tech. Are. So it's it's one and the same, and and one just sounds better than the other. Yeah, that's a good point. I see that. I thought of it more of like you know, from the like there is an aspect of when you think of the rise of like the internet technology stack. For example, we've seen that uh, picture go out there where it's like a a puzzle of like a grid of like nine technologies, SMTP, TCIP, and like all that stuff. And then at the bottom right is the little orange puzzle piece for Bitcoin, which is, you know, permissionless payments on the network. So to me, like that was why I put included like in the tech, like, yes, the tech obviously like allows for separation and, and other, uh, you know, triple entry accounting and other kinds of, uh, advancements, of course, but that was why I put it separately. Yeah. If you, yeah, if you, yeah Tone, that was brilliant. What you just said, that was fucking brilliant. Oh, <laughs> look, if you do the poll again, right, just give people two choices, maybe with the third choice, see results, right? But your choices should be whether you have Bitcoin or thinking about Bitcoin, are you going to do it or do you have it, uh, for number go up or for the tax slash separate money from state, right? Just give people two choices. And it doesn't matter if you have it or thinking about getting it. Uh, why do you have it or why would you buy it? One of those two reasons. Yeah, that's good. I'm going to wait a few days and then we'll, we'll send that one back out. I like this. This is very interesting. And I think what Tone said is spot on. It, it's the tech that allows money to be separated from state with that said i i do know some people who have told me they got into bitcoin just because they were a techie person and they read some article describing how bitcoin works and they said oh this is cool let me learn more about this uh but even those people um i, I guess the point i'm making is they got into it without having any idea that bitcoin separates money from state I think the reality is that, you know, if you spend enough time looking at Bitcoin, you quickly come to that conclusion. Oh, this is the technology that allows us to separate money from state. 
Um, but I just wanted to make that that nuance because I think there are some people who just saw the tech and said, this is cool, let me learn more. Yeah, no, that's a great point, John. I know Poppy has his hand up. Uh, now, there's two things there. One, the pool of these people is super small. Uh, the amount of people that got in it for the tech back in 2010 or 2009, the pool of those, or we can take it out to 2011. The pool of these people that get in for the tech is really small. and of all the people that will tell you they got in it for the tech and it was interesting to them, and half of them are bullshitting, right? Like the amount of people that I've met that found Bitcoin in 2010 and got in it for the tech is uh, unreasonably high. And it's actually an impossible number. So we can all bullshit as to when they got into Bitcoin. It's insane. Probably a lot of truth to that. Bobby, go ahead. Oh, yeah. Shameless plug. Uh, look, guys, go long. Um, as you know, two o'clock, toxic half hour start. So maybe you guys can transition from here to there. I, I see you guys all the time. Tone, stop by, man. I sent you an invite um, to join us if you can at two o'clock. Uh, no, thanks. And looking forward. I met John um, at, at Bitcoin Day in Naples. Everyone's here on stage and just all about getting on the mission. Uh, I, I shared a link in the nest. Uh, if, if you like these guys, the macro guys, toxic half hour, half hour plug party in Miami, the day before the conference. I'll tell you what, man, we are lined up a rooftop uh, location helped by who? Swan.com said, hey, we love what you guys are doing. We're going to help sponsor this thing. So yeah, join us if you can. It's going to be a blast. I echo all of that. I met Pubby. I met Anders at Bitcoin Day Naples. We did a toxic happy hour in person. It was fantastic. So highly encourage everyone to check out uh, the Twitter Spaces version of Toxic Happy Hour. And if you're going to Miami, uh, check out the in-person version of Toxic Happy Hour. Okay. With that, um, I have one more topic that I would like to bring up. Um, and it has to do with the events of the last couple of weeks. And it has to do with some of the guys on the All In podcast, which uh, I'm sure most people are aware of. But I'll just give the, the quick summary of what that is. So this is uh, Chamath uh, Palihapitiya. It is uh, Jason Kalakinakis. I'm not sure if I'm saying his last name right. David Sachs. And then a couple other guys that I think they, they rotate in. But... Um, those are the main players. Obviously, they're all very wealthy people in the tech VC world. Uh, they started a podcast at some point in the last couple of years. They talk about markets. They talk about VC. They talk a little politics, current events, etc. And I'm sure that people saw David Sachs made some headlines when he uh, was very vocal on Twitter uh, about Powell and Yellen and the FDIC doing something. I think he literally had a tweet where he said, where is Powell? Where is Yellen? Uh, very, you know, quite frankly, frantically uh, tweeting about how people who had their money with SVB need to be saved. And I'm not necessarily critiquing that. Uh, again, just to bring it back to a comment I had before, we ha I, I'm, I reject the system that we have of fractional reserve banking, where when people, all they want to do is store money and make payments, they're forced to take these investment risks of what the bank is doing with their money. Because people don't really have another option, I think it opens up a fair debate over whether or not these people can, can or should be protected. 
But anyway, that's that's not my point in in bringing this up. My point is is just to say that David Sachs and Jason were pretty uh, uh, in, in, uh, pretty intensely defending the fact that SVB depositors needed to be protected. And apparently, I had a friend who just uh, who's a Bitcoiner, um, good friend of mine, was just saying how uh, the latest episode of the All In podcast, they were saying that a solution is that there needs to be a bank that they described as a bank vault where people just use it to store money and to make payments and not want the bank using their money for something risky. And, you know, I have many mixed thoughts about this. On the one hand, I think it's great that people are saying this. We, we need to split up uh, savings and payments on the one side, which is a very simple activity that people want to do versus investing. As I mentioned earlier, owning treasuries, owning mortgage-backed securities, corporate bonds, commercial loans, real estate loans, that's investing. And it comes with certain risks. It comes with analysis you have to do. It comes with the risk of losing everything. And it should have nothing to do with someone who just wants to store money and make payments. So I am, I am excited that they are kind of waking up to this reality. However, uh, it's just kind of crazy to me because uh, a few things. One is that we know from the Narrow Bank and Custodia Bank, uh, the Narrow Bank is featured in Safedine's book. I always forget if it's in the Bitcoin standard or the fiat standard, but it's in one of those. It was a bank that wanted to essentially be full reserve. Uh, Custodia Bank is Caitlin Long's bank. It wanted to be, I believe they wanted to be over-reserved somehow. They were, they were going to hold more than 100% in reserves uh, uh, compared to deposits. And neither one of them was allowed to get a bank charter or license, whatever it's called, by the Fed. So, I mean, this is just basically highlighting the fact that these types of banks are not even allowed to exist. But the the last thing I want uh, to highlight here is even if that did exist, you still have problem. It, it would be significantly better than our current system. I, I want to make that very clear. But even if that does happen, you still have problems of one, debasement, and two, you have a problem of censorship because you're still using a third party that can you know, censor you if you say the wrong thing or the government comes after you, your accounts can be seized. Full reserve doesn't change that. And you still have the issues of debasement. If the Fed and the Treasury are going to be in bed with each other and decide to debase the currency, the fact that you're in a full reserve institution doesn't really protect you from that. So I bring this all up because it's related to obviously the, the events of the past few weeks here. Um, and, and like I said, some positive things about this because people are realizing, hey, why are bank depositors taking all these crazy risks when they don't actually want to take them? But at the same time, I think we need to be clear about the fact that this proposed solution of a full reserve bank still has a lot of issues, which I think Bitcoiners are uh, very in touch with. but mainstream is probably not in touch with yet. So with that said, I'd like to open it up. Does anyone have uh, anything you'd like to share in, in reaction to that? Uh, anything about what some of the all-in guys have said over the last few weeks about uh, their proposed solution? Uh, would like to open it up to anyone who has something to share. 
Well, I, I just couldn't agree more. Uh, uh, since I'm here with the unconfiscatable handle, it's great that you mentioned that aspect to it. Uh, yeah, no, I don't have anything else to add. That was uh, that, that was more of a statement than a question to the group. It was uh, perfect. Yeah, no, that's that's, that's true. Uh, yeah, I don't I don't know if I necessarily had a question. Uh, I guess if anyone you know disagreed or had a clarification, but. Uh, yeah, I would, I would just reiterate the point that it would be a giant step in the right direction to have full reserve banking. But the two of the biggest problems are debasement and censorship. Uh, you know, debasement kind of can be used interchangeably with inflation, which is tricky in and of itself because the word inflation has been co-opted, quite frankly, to become price increases. Uh, that's not really the original definition of the word inflation. And it, it kind of makes sense if you think about the word inflation. It you wouldn't if something's increasing, you wouldn't say uh, if, if the level of something is increasing. You know, if the temperature in the room was going up, you'd say it's increasing. You wouldn't say it's inflating. Inflating refers to a more volumetric uh, uh, point of view. And the original definition of inflation was the money supply inflating. It was not necessarily about price levels increasing. And why this gets even trickier is because when the money supply increases, it inflates, you often have prices increasing on a lagged basis as a result. So it's not as if the two are completely separate, but referring to price increases as inflation has confused the whole conversation. So that's a lot of times why I use the word debasement um, or I'll say debasement slash inflation. Uh, so anyway, takeaway there is that in a full reserve system, you don't get away from the risks of debasement and you don't get away from the risks of censorship. So eventually I think people will, will say, oh, fractional reserve is inherently uh, unstable and risky uh, and full reserve is better. And then eventually I think they'll realize, okay, well, how about a self-custodial finite supply, peer-to-peer -peer digital non-state form of money, uh, which is yet another step even better. So. I am. Uh, I think I'm going to be passing it off to Tomer pretty shortly here, but uh, Tone would love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, no, we said about like naming inflation. I, I agree with that as well. Uh, but going back to your first point about a full reserve bank, I'm going to play a little bit of a devil's advocate and be a little controversial. We don't know what would have happened had we never got off the gold standard, right? Or at least like everything kind of fell apart in 1971. It was basically after 71, we really went, you know, quadruple down on fractional reserve banking. It was easy money. And the internet was starting to get invented, what, like in the late 70s? I mean, there really isn't like a specific day you can point to it. But we're here on spaces. I mean, Google, the, Google, the Amazons, Netflix, like our life today uh, is so different. And it was the only real innovation of the last 50, 70 years was the internet. And Sabadine made a really good point in his book saying that there were so many life-changing innovations before uh, the Federal Reserve and the world, you know, got off the gold standard, right? We had the, com uh, the combustion engine, we had, uh, uh, I always use invention of flight and electricity and yeah, yeah all these in innovations. But we don't know if we'll be sitting here talking on spaces if it wasn't for this easy money. Like the 2000 bubble was not 
a bad bubble. Well, like look what it created. Like it created this entire technology. And, uh, but anyway, so, so we don't know what would have happened in this world. Like if there was a parallel world where it was on the gold standard and the Federal Reserve would have never been created. We don't know if we would be like, you know, writing each other letters right now. Like the internet might not have taken off under a gold standard. We just don't know uh, whether this easy money was absolutely necessary for our society to get here. Um, I love this topic, Tone. I am a little upset that Steven Lubka was not able to join us. I think he was having some of the Android issues because he loves this topic as well. I would put a lot of this in the category of, you know, it, it's impossible. I was going to say hard. It's impossible to prove a counterfactual. So these are always going to be debates. No one can say with absolute certainty that if we stayed on a sound money standard, you know, we would have had uh, the level of telecommunications we have now. Plus, we would have had, you know, five other life-changing inventions. Or alternatively, no one can 100% certainty say uh, if we stayed on the sound money standard, we would not have the advancements in telecommunications. These things are always going to be a debate. Um, I do love that you you brought up this topic, though. I am sure uh, Tomer has some thoughts on this. And with that, uh, I do have to hop for a few meetings myself. But it has been awesome to hang with everyone. 